The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading is Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 52. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter, he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, or he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him, lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, that's Jesus, and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word, and it is true. Let me pray once more. God, we come to hear your word. Would you bless the words of my mouth? Would you bless the meditations of our heart as we hear you speak? We come to hear you speak. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. On October 18th, 1993, a Billboard chart-topping song was released. It would become a global success, and it was ranked as one of the greatest songs of the 90s. Part of it reads like this. We'll see if you can recognize it. There's an answer. If you reach into your soul, in the sorrow that you know, it will melt away. And then a hero comes along with the strength to carry on, and you cast your fears aside, and you know you can survive. So when you feel like hope is gone, look inside you and be strong. And you'll finally see the truth that a hero 
lies in you. Does anyone know the song, the artist, by chance? Mariah Carey, look at that. We're doing, we're going to go do trivia this week, me and John. Dream come true. We got this. It is Hero by Mariah Carey. What's interesting about this song is that this song defines, defines what has been called the triumph of self. The triumph of self. It's this message that all you need is you. Right? You can do it. You can be the hero that you should look up to. Right? Our movies, our media, even children's cartoons tell you this story. The only confirmation you need to know that you're doing it right, right? It's if it feels good, right? If it makes you happy, if it lifts up self, the triumph of self. The question before you is if you have believed that and if you live that way today, is your life a triumph of self? Do you abandon all others for the triumph of me? See, we may say that we are committed to something, to someone, to a cause, to our faith. And yet, we may still be looking to ourselves, even when we're dressed up in our Sunday best. Right? Isn't this what the disciples look like? They're there with Jesus. They emphatically say, we'll never leave you. And yet, they look to their own understandings. Right? They abandon ship, right? Because this isn't the Savior they thought or wanted. Right? The question for you to consider is who you are looking to for life. Whose will do you want to be done? Who comforts you when you're abandoned while others live for themselves? If we're honest, if we're honest, we know that we're not the hero as many songs as we sing that seem to say so. We know that our best days give away to much worse days and much much worse versions of ourselves. But our text has good news for us. It shows us that first, we're not the hero. But that a hero came and that a hero was abandoned. Why? So that we might never be abandoned again. To say it another way, our text reveals that because Jesus was abandoned for us, we never will be by him. Jesus was abandoned for us. We will never be abandoned by God because of it. So what do we do? We look to Jesus. We fix our eyes. We watch Jesus. Looking at our first six verses, 26 to 31, uh, Jesus foretells the disciples' abandonment of him. And we gather that if they, if we want to look to Jesus, we must stop looking at something else, ourselves. We just stop looking to our understanding. The hero is not me. So look back, verse 36. They likely sung Psalms 113 through 118, which was customary for the Passover. Right? And they leave the upper room where they had just had the Lord's Supper instituted as, Pastor, as Reverend Chris Steinbarger had preached on last week. And they begin this 20-minute walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's where this conversation likely takes place. In verse 27, as they walk, Jesus tells them some poor news. You will all fall away. Now, the word for fall away, it doesn't mean forever. Never to return again to Jesus. But rather, it's the word for stumble. It's the word for a a lapse. A temporary, though serious, but temporary lapse. And Jesus goes and he applies Zechariah 13 verse 7 to himself. He's the shepherd 
the sheep are his disciples. And in Zechariah 13, if we were to go and look at the context there, God in that passage is using the evil of men in order to strike the shepherd, in order that the sheep would be scattered. Why? Well, two verses later in Zechariah 13, 9, it's so that God will make the sheep his very own people. You see, it's actually in Zechariah, it's, it's this gospel news is being shown that God striking, abandoning the shepherd will mean they're actually coming in and coming back to God. In verse 28, Jesus gives better news, though. He says, after I have been raised, I will meet you in Galilee. Now, it seems actually odd that he would name Galilee because a true Messiah, right, the true Messiah they were expecting, he'd be going to Jerusalem, right? That's where the Messiah goes to overthrow Rome. That's the expectation. But Jesus redirects their thinking. He says, rather, I'll meet you in the place where I first said, come follow me. That's what Galilee was. Peter, James, and John, right? Fishermen by the Sea of Galilee. He says, I'll meet you there. But this news passes right over the disciples' head. Why? Because they are looking to their own plan, their own strength, right? Their own ability to say, I will hold on to you, Jesus. I will not deny you, Jesus. Well, Peter, often the spokesperson, poor Peter, we might think, poor Peter, maybe not poor Peter here, because in verse 29, he confidently throws everyone else under the bus, right? He says, even if they fall, I won't. In verse 30, Jesus rebukes Peter's pride and conceit and says, Peter, before the night's even over, you're going to deny me three times. Now, numbers have different meanings of significance in, in a Jewish mindset. And the number three, naturally, has this meaning of completeness. Right? We might think of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three signifies completeness. So, Peter's denial, though it is a lapse, it is a complete one. It's a serious one. It's not a mistake. It's not a slip of the tongue. But verse 31, Peter, Peter swings back emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples, apparently not upset about what Peter had said about them earlier, will not be outdone. Right? They say, us too. Us too. See, the disciples throughout much of Mark, right, they're looking to their own plan. They're looking to their own definition of the type of Jesus they want, right? They're looking even to the, to the position they might have in the kingdom. Will I sit on your right? Will I sit on your left? But they've missed the plan all along. See, Jesus, how many times? Three times. Three times in Mark 8 to 10 said, I will be abandoned, I will die, and then I will be risen. It's a complete plan. He's laid out for them already but they don't see it. They know best, it seems. This week I uh, saw a quote that read this way. It said, Through extensive research, I have come to the conclusion that everyone is getting it wrong but me. Right? We, uh, even if we'd never say that out loud, <laughs> that's often how we live. We don't walk around thinking, yeah, I'm probably wrong about most things, I think. Most of my opinions, not right. We don't do that. And in a day where this almost feels like a weaponized statement, well, the research shows, well, the research shows, right, fill in the blank, our extensive research, if we're honest, often begins and ends with us, with how I feel right now, because whatever I read, I need it to confirm what I already believe. 
That's enough to tell me I'm right. That's enough for me to say my will be done. See, even in our conversations with authorities or bosses, leaders, maybe elders, when we hear no as the response, what's often our posture in response? Oh, yeah? You just watched me. Oh, yeah? You just watched me. Parents, you've likely heard that from teens. Sorry, teens. But don't worry, teens. Your parents said the same thing to their parents. My parents can vouch for that. And in truth, we say this to God. God says, thou shalt fill in the blank. Love God first. Love your neighbor. Fill in the blank. We say, oh yeah? You just watch me. I'll do as I please. My will be done. You see, the reason the gospel is firstly so offensive to us and to to people in every single age is that it says, yes, you are of great value, but you are not God. You are not God. Self is not God. You can't control the future. You can't control the present. You don't decide your gender. Wild thing to say in our day. No, God does. God formed you. You don't decide when you are born. We look at the prices around us. We don't decide if we're rich or poor, right? We don't decide if we have a tummy ache or if we're going to be ornery or content when we wake up. We can't even control our emotions so often. You're not God. The disciples' response to Jesus is one of looking to self and saying, oh yeah, just watch me. Even if it's dressed up in a noble in a noble response, or seemingly noble, right? It's not a rejection like the world gives of running opposite of what Jesus says in every form. But it is trying to do something for God out of what they or we think is best, what we think we're capable of. But even when it looks religious, is dressed up in that way, we can still be looking to ourselves and not to God. That's what the disciples were doing. They were still saying, my will be done. But notice Jesus' reference to Zechariah 13. It reveals this glorious gospel picture that we would never think up or write ourselves. In the triumph of self-story, we wouldn't write this, right? There's a shepherd. He's struck and abandoned. The sheep are scattered. Why? So that God would bring his people back to himself. So Jesus quotes there. If we are ever going to look to Jesus, we have to take our eyes off of ourselves. We cannot look to the triumph of me. You see, our feelings of happy, they can't confirm what's right. Our feelings of peace, even, can't confirm that God's near to us or that we're in God's will. Why? Because even in just a moment, we'll see Jesus feeling less peace, less happy, further away from God's presence than anyone in all of time. And yet, Jesus is smack dab in the middle of God's will in that moment. God's counterintuitive plan of abandoning the good shepherd is not the one we guess. Yes, yet it is the one that is meant to make us his people. Him abandoned so that we might never be. So our first point, we look to Jesus. How? By stopping looking at ourselves. By stop looking at ourselves and depending on our own understandings. The, uh, The clearest sign if we are looking to ourselves often is if someone would measure our prayer life. Right? For many of us, one of the more shame-inducing questions is, how's your prayer life? 
And our second point, looking to Jesus, means learning to pray like he did. Jesus is wholly dependent upon the Father. We see this in 32 through 42. In verses 32 to 33, you see Jesus leaves eight disciples, right? At the, at whenever they get to the garden, he goes further with three more, Peter, James, and John, and he confides in them. He says, I'm so burdened with grief that I could die. That's what he's communicating there. But he goes further and his legs give way. Now, the reason this is interesting or significant is in ancient times, how they actually prayed was standing with hands lifted heavenward. We do the opposite, right? We sit down and we bow our heads, but that's how they typically prayed, hands with hands up, standing up. And so for someone to, to be praying on their knees or laying down is this sign of extreme spiritual anguish. And so Mark's gospel, as we've heard essentially every week we've been here, is it shows us that Jesus is God, right? Which is an uncomfortable truth because it means we have to follow him, right? And obey what he says. Yet, when we read Jesus' words here, perhaps we feel a different type of discomfort or an uncomfortability. It's with how very human Jesus is. Right? Verse 35, Jesus prays that if possible, let this hour pass from him. Look at verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He doesn't pray this once. Verse 39 and 41 show us that he prays this three times. Right? This is a complete request that he gives. We need to clarify something here. Jesus isn't praying for redemption not to happen. Nope. He's not praying that some other will would be done. Some other Uh, plan that he and the Father and the Spirit had originally planned up would be done. He's not praying for that, no. He wants redemption done, but he's asking for the possibility of another way for it to be fulfilled. The divine Christ, who knows what must happen here as a human, right, as a human, as a man, is being crushed in temptation, crushed in anguish. He says, yet not what I will, but what you will, Lord. So, what is this language of cup? Right? What, what is he facing? Well, the cup in the Old Testament uh, is a reference to God's cup of wrath. It's God's cup of wrath. Now, and this is normally served only to God's enemies. Right? This is judgment. This is destruction. It's served up to his sinful enemies. Let's pause for a moment and consider our own lives. If we live like enemies of God, how much, how much sin, if you were to put your arms around it, consider one day's worth of sin in your life. One day. Consider a week's worth of sin. Consider that multiplied by billions with a B. Billions and billions. A world where there's holocausts, ethnic cleansing, people stealing and slavery, abortions, sex trades. The sin of those involved in such things, of those people who are involved in that, who repent, and all of our sin, all of it, who trust in Christ, that's what fills the cup that is being put in front of Jesus Christ. Not just your sin, all sin for those who trust in Christ. The cup bears a name, Jesus 
is written on it. And it's set before him, even now at the height of temptation or testing for Jesus, what does he do? What is the sign when all else fails? It's the worst moment, truly, in all of history. What does Jesus do? He prays. He prays. And what does he pray? Not what I will, but what you will, Father. Verse 37 and 41, the, the disciples whose spirits were willing, way back in verse 31, right, to face anything, they give in to their weak flesh. They can't even stay awake to pray for one hour. It's a long time. Last time any of us probably sat and prayed for one whole hour was maybe not recently, maybe not. But Jesus says, you can't even stay awake for one hour to pray with me. Verses 41 and 42, Jesus' prayers are answered, though. What's the answer? No. No. The shepherd must be struck. Redemption must come through abandonment, through suffering, through dying, through drinking the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is abandoned so that even his sleeping disciples would never be abandoned. Have you ever been asked to do something so many times that you're sick of hearing it? Clean your room. Did you floss? Sit down at the dinner table. Did you take out the trash? Did you get that report in on time? Did you send out the email? Did you remember to fill in the blank? This is often how we feel when someone says, well, did, did, you, did you pray? Or you should pray? feels like a tired request. We've heard it. We feel it. I don't know if this is how the disciples feel in hearing Jesus' request to, to watch and pray. Right? And even when their spirit is willing, or perhaps even ours is too, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray tomorrow. Tomorrow's busy. Next week, I'm going to start the prayer plan. Even when our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. But Jesus prays, not because it's the thing he should do. Peter wasn't like, Jesus, hey, like, now's a good time to pray. Nope. Peter probably wishes he would have gotten that one right. But Jesus prays because he's so dependent on God. Because he knows that there's no one else to look to but his Father. There's no other option but to pray. Why is prayer so often not our lifeline? Why don't we pray like Jesus does? It might be, it might be that we think our prayers need to be more pretty than honest. As Presbyterians, we love pretty prayers. Oh, a good noun, adjective, verb. Ooh, put it together. It's beautiful. That's not bad. But in truth, prayer is, if it were an automobile, it'd be like an overnight traveling bus, right? Probably with the septic system broke. Why? Because while there might be pretty spots along the way, it's more likely that the bus is filled with groans, with messiness, with discomfort, with honest statements of, I don't want to pray. Do you even hear me? I can't see you, God. Are you really there? See, Jesus' example, if we look at this moment, what's Jesus' example of how we should pray? He's laying in a, in a heap on the ground in a garden. That's his example of prayer to us. It's not pretty. He's saying uncomfortable words for us to hear. Prayer is made for that type of prayer. It's made to be prayed in non-pretty, honest ways, both pretty and unpretty. 
Do we not pray? Because we think prayer should be easy and not hard. It should be like flipping on a light switch rather than shoveling rock, right? Rather than giving birth, raising a child, right? Name difficult things. But look at even what Jesus is doing. It is not easy, the prayer that he is praying. It is a battle against Satan, against real temptation. Learning to pray is not an easy thing. It's not to be an easy thing. We're supposed to come ready to fight. Fight what? For honest, boredom, right? Disinterest. I'd much rather look at my phone. I'd much rather see what that person said about that thing, right? We battle against our doubts. We battle against temptation. Prayer is battle. We're honest that it's not easy. It's not pretty. Jesus shows us that here. But in truth, we likely don't pray because we don't look to Jesus as our only help, as our only hope, and as our only hero. But what's notable about all the prayers that we pray if we've trusted in Christ, what's notable about our prayer versus Jesus' prayer is that Jesus' prayer in the garden ends with abandonment. Why? So that you would know that every prayer you'd ever pray in looking to Jesus will be heard. Every prayer you ever pray would not be abandoned, even though Jesus' prayer was. The Father gives up his Son, making us sons and daughters who lift their voices about stubbed toes and boring Wednesdays and discontentment in the morning and the darkest moments that we'd ever face, knowing that he's there, knowing he doesn't abandon us. It's much simpler of a thing and yet more of a battle of a thing than we'd ever imagine prayer is. So how do we start? Perhaps you say, okay, my spirit's willing. I want to pray. How do we pray? Jesus literally says in Matthew 6, when praying, do it like this. If you even look at what Jesus prays here in the garden, do you know what it sounds like? The Lord's Prayer. But not my will, Father, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or even the disciples, what is he saying? Pray that you would not be led into temptation, right? Form your prayer. If you know nowhere else to start, go to the Lord's Prayer. Pray the Lord's Prayer. It's a good place to start battling. We look to Jesus, how? By learning to pray as he does. By learning to pray as he does. We turn finally to verses 43 through 51. You can look there in the text. This, This section presses home the utter betrayal and abandonment that Jesus faced. Why? Again, so that we would never face abandonment from God. So that when we look to Jesus, what should we feel? What should we feel? We should be comforted. We should be comforted. Verse 43, Mark calls Judas one of the twelve. This isn't a mistake, right? This drives home the sting of betrayal of a friend, of a follower, Notice that Jesus, or not Jesus, but Judas brings enough armed guards from the religious leaders that they'd be able to put down a small uprising. That's why there's so many coming. And because it's dark in the garden, Judas has this great plan, right? So he can point out Jesus. He calls him an affectionate term, rabbi, teacher. And then he gives a sweet sign of brotherly affection, and he kisses Jesus. And that's the sign at which the guards seize Jesus. If you were to look at uh, Matthew, Luke, and John's account of the Garden of Gethsemane, when we see there's, there's often more details than what Mark gives. But in verse 47, when Jesus is seized, a person who John tells us is Peter, slices off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. 
Luke records that Jesus immediately heals the man's ear. And in John, Jesus actually then rebukes Peter. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? The cup is still there. In Mark, verse 48, Jesus then rebukes the armed guard, right? Because they're treating him like a robber, like a transgressor. He said, you could have gotten me any day. I was in the temple. You knew where I was, but you didn't come and get me. Why? He says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. What we read today in Isaiah 53, that Jesus would be numbered among the transgressors. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy. And in verse 50, we see another fulfillment of a prophecy from verse 27, right? What happens in verse 50? They all, they all leave him. The Spirit was willing. The Spirit looked confidently at self and said, Not I, Lord. Nope. But the flesh was weak. They abandoned Jesus. Perhaps the two verses you've been waiting for this whole time is 51 and 52, because why? <laughs> What's happening here? Many have puzzled about that. What does this naked youth have to do with the story? Maybe it's just to wake us up, right? The Lord knows we're so weak. No, but the most common understanding of this is that the young man is Mark himself, right? Often in John, in the Gospel of John, he doesn't name himself until the very end. And so commentators often think, this is Mark, right? He's actually showing in an implied way, he's giving an eyewitness testimony to what's happening here as he flees off. But there's something else here as well. Mark is making clear that Jesus is entirely abandoned. Entirely abandoned. The fathers left him. The disciples have left him. Even this youth who was following behind to track what was happening has left him. A young man in a garden, running naked, afraid, and ashamed from his Lord. This should take our minds to another garden when a man and a woman were hiding, naked, afraid, and ashamed of their Lord. The Lord came looking for them in the Garden of Eden. It was in that garden that the Lord went and found them. And it's in that garden when Jesus, when rather God, cursed Adam and Eve. And he also made promises to them. Why? So that in this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would become that curse for them. And Jesus would fulfill those promises he made to them. You see the beautiful connections of this story. Jesus in a garden goes to save the people he cursed and made promises to in a garden. The last, the last section of our passage, it teaches us this, that no matter how close you think you are to Jesus, no matter how much you think you can follow him, your capacity for betraying him and abandoning him is great. Your best efforts to say, I will hold on to him. My faith won't fail. I'm not like those sinners out there. No, the scriptures Yell to us, yes, you are. Yes, you are. If those nearest to Jesus abandon him, then what makes us think we are any better? We are not. And here is where the gospel comfort comes in. Are you ready? Whether you've trusted in Christ today or not, you can. But the gospel comfort is this. It's that your salvation, your belonging to God... It is not based on the triumph of self. It is not dependent upon the strength of your hands to hold on to him. It's dependent on his strength to hold on to you. You see, the triune God so willed 
that Jesus would be abandoned so that you never will be. There's two comforts here that you must ask God to make you feel today. Okay, two comforts. J.C. Ryle says, Look not unto yourself. You are by nature wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Look simply unto Jesus. Why? Because you're not pleading yourself. You are pleading Jesus. You're pleading his abandonment by the Father in a garden, on a cross, and to the punishment of your sin that you deserve. Because it means you'll never be abandoned. That's the comfort. It's his to secure, not yours. On your worst days, it's his to secure, not yours. The second comfort you must feel in looking to Jesus is that on the darkest of nights, right, in the worst of loss, of wishing that something else were so in your life, you are completely understood. You are completely understood because your moment will never be worse than the moment that Jesus faced all the sin of those who would trust in him. It will never be worse than that. And he understands what you face. That's the comfort for you today and every day. Hebrews 4 clarifies, says the comfort we can take in saying that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who in every respect in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. With confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find the grace to help in the time of need. We look to Jesus alone, and what do we feel when we look to Jesus? Comfort. Comfort. He secures your salvation. He knows what you face always. Always. To close, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, an apologist in his book, Reasonable Faith, he recounts a story about how a number of years ago, a plane was leaving Washington, D.C., and it struck a bridge over the Potomac River and went down into the icy waters uh, because it was in the winter. And rescue helicopters came as the passengers were struggling to survive in the river below. And a camera captured this footage of a man who again and again pushed the rope ladder away from himself. Six times he did it. And on the last time the rope ladder came down for him, he was gone. He was gone. The world watched this footage in awe of this hero, a man choosing not the triumph of self, but rather the abandonment of self, that others might be saved. And if this is amazing of a normal man who was on a plane that crashed, icy waters, how much more amazing is it that the God in heaven left and became a man down in the muck of our sin? And he was abandoned in a garden and he went to a cross for your sin and he died for it. And then he rose again. He was abandoned. He was abandoned that you might never be. It's the goodness of the gospel for you who trust in Jesus Christ today. We look to this man, Jesus Christ, taking our eyes off ourselves learning to depend upon him by praying, even just the words he's taught us, Matthew 6. We look to him knowing that he comforts us because there is nothing we face alone and that our salvation is never ours to secure. You are not abandoned by God, even though Jesus was. You can look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, oh, we are a people who are of a great capacity to abandon you. And when we look and sing the song of a hero within, 
We lie to ourselves. The world lies to itself. There is indeed a hero. And he indeed is a man. He is a God-man. And he was struck and he was abandoned so that you, O Father of all fathers, would come and would save us, would make us so that we'd never be abandoned ever again. Turn our eyes to look in Jesus this day and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.